All right, if you got a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9, working through uh, an incredible story of the early church. And this morning, we're going to continue by looking at that conversion of Saul. Most of you, if you're a Christian, have heard this story. You've read through Acts. You've been encouraged with Saul on the road to Damascus and what happened when he saw that bright light. And so this morning's message is entitled, Blinded by the Light. Blinded by the light, and we're looking here again at the conversion of Saul. We'll be here for a few weeks, and Acts chapter 9, this morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Luke writes this about the conversion of Saul. He says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without without sight and neither ate nor drank." Father, we desire to understand this amazing conversion of Saul becoming Paul, to understand the the depths of the gospel, to change any man, any woman, any boy, any girl from being lost in darkness to being saved by the light of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this familiar conversion today, I pray that we would think much about our own conversion And if there be someone here today still walking in the darkness today, God, I pray that you would shine that light all around them, that they may see the beauty of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, the conversion of Charles Colson from supporting a president that would be impeached to serving Jesus Christ, whose kingdom knows no end, is one of the most fascinating testimonies of modern times. He died, Charles Colson that is, of a brain hemorrhage on April the 21st of just this past year. He was 80 years old. Chuck Colson, as he became known, had a reputation as a dirty tricks artist which overshadowed his his, uh, achievements as a brilliant political strategist. He helped lay the groundwork of the Nixon landslide of November of 1972, and he did that by appealing to disgruntled Democrats and blue-collar minority voters. A self-described hatchet man for Nixon, Mr. Colson complied the notorious enemies list of politicians, journalists, and activists perceived as threats to the White House. And most consequently, he helped orchestrate illegal activities to discredit former Pentagon official Daniel Ellsberg, who was suspected of leaking top-secret history of the Vietnam War to the New York Times and to the Washington Post. Colson eventually pled guilty to the obstruction of justice as he was also a noted figure in the Watergate break-in scandal. 
In the midst of this crisis, Mr. Coulson said he underwent a profound religious transformation in August of 1973. Acting against the advice of his lawyers, Mr. Coulson pleaded guilty, a step that he described as, quote, a price I had to pay for the complete shedding of my old life and to be free to live the new. Released on parole in January of 1975, after seven months in a minimum security prison, Mr. Coulson became a leading voice in the evangelical world as an advocate for prison reform. The need for such work, he said, was drawn from what he called his frightening experience in confinement. Prison, he said, was filled with embittered prisoners who contemplated escape and revenge at every turn. He transferred his huge drive, intellect, and maniacal energy from the service of Richard Nixon to the service of Jesus Christ, said his biographer, Jonathan Atkin. Mr. Coulson's autobiography, entitled Born Again, was first published in 1976 and has sold millions of copies over the years. And Mr. Coulson attributed his guilty plea to his conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ on the night of August the 12th, 1973. In addition to, reaching, to reading the scriptures, his transformation was strongly influenced by C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity. Initially, the news of his birth was greeted, his rebirth in Christ was greeted with skepticism and even mockery, but over time, his faith proved to be true. Doubts about the sincerity of Mr. Coulson's conversion were put to rest by his subsequent actions on behalf of prisoners around the world. The Prison Fellowship Ministries, founded by Chuck Coulson in the United States in 1976, grew into a worldwide movement with branches in more than 110 different countries. Well, as amazing as Chuck Colson's testimony is, I know for some of you younger ones, maybe that's the first time you heard it, but he was quite profound in the political ages of the 70s and talked about a lot in the 80s. To some of you older ones, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. What an incredible testimony, right? And as amazing as that Chuck Colson testimony is, this morning we're going to learn about an even more profound, an even more miraculous, and about an even more outspoken convert to Christ, and we're obviously talking about Saul, who became Paul on the road to Damascus. And like Colson, Saul was working with the political leaders of his day. Saul had his own enemies list. Saul wanted to obliterate Christianity and to remove that new faith from the face of the earth. And Saul was not impacted by a book, but he was impacted by direct revelation and confrontation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Saul was pursued by Christ. He was confronted by Christ. He was changed by Christ. And Paul, as his name was changed, became the writer of 13 books in the New Testament. Paul was a missionary. He was a theologian. He was an evangelist. He was a pastor. He was an organizer. He was a leader, a thinker, and a fighter for the truth. Paul was a lover of souls. And many would say that there has never been a more godly man who has ever lived except the Lord himself. This morning, I want to share with you three headings from our text that will help us better understand this miraculous nature of Saul's conversion. We'll see the threat of being a disciple of Jesus, verses one through two, the necessity 
of being confronted by Jesus, verses three through six, and then the impact of being humbled by Jesus in verses seven through nine. Let's start with number one, the persecution of every disciple of Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, that first blank says Saul's biography. Saul's biography. We're reading in verse one and two, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Well, if you remember, Saul was born in Tarsus, a well-known and important city. It was located in the Roman province of Sicilia, and Tarsus was located near where Asia Minor and Syria meet, not far from Antioch. It was famous for its university, which ranked up there with those of Athens, Greece, and Alexandria, which was in northern Egypt, and was among some of the most honored schools of the Roman world. Saul's father must have been a Roman citizen since Saul explained that he was a citizen from Rome by birth. Saul's Jewish credentials were in the highest rank. Like his father before him, he was a Pharisee. Saul studied in Jerusalem under the most respected rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And because Saul had never met Jesus, he must have returned to Tarsus for a season after he completed his studies in Jerusalem. Saul makes his first appearance in Scripture back in Acts chapter 7. Turn over there, just a couple of chapters back. Acts chapter 7, at the very end, after uh, we read about Stephen's sermon, and he's going to be stoned to death, and we read in verse 58, then they cast out, uh, they cast him, that would be Stephen, out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. First time he shows up in scripture, Saul's presence at this execution shows that he was deeply involved in the persecution of Christians. There's no question that Saul's role in the aftermath of Stephen's martyrdom is explained here in the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Saul seemed to have a special gift, a special knack for persecuting Christians, In fact, Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts chapter 22, verse 4, Paul states, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. We also read in Acts chapter 22, verse 19, Paul says that they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, we read about Paul when he said, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so we know that this guy hated Christians. He hated people like you and like me. He wanted to, with a vengeance, come down upon and lower the hammer on all those who believed in Christ. And really, the behavior of Saul is staggering. But Christians have been warned that persecution is coming. Remember, Jesus said in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, then they will persecute you. 
And by the way, that stands for all disciples of all ages. This isn't just Jesus talking to the 12. This is Jesus speaking to all of us today that if they persecuted him, they will persecute you. And it just so happens that Saul was at the very front of leading that type of persecution. Jesus had also said, as you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Persecution will come to every faithful disciple and follower of Jesus. We must be ready and stand firm when it comes. Well, now that we've seen just a little bit about Saul's biography, let's consider our next blank, Saul's rationale. Saul's rationale. How in the world could a guy who said he was so religious and who loved the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, he's a Pharisee, remember, how in the world would he justify this type of murderous behavior? I would say that Saul didn't know exactly what he was doing. He thought that Christianity was a false religion. He wanted to get rid of anything that wasn't consistent with the Jewish faith. And so he was trying to be faithful to, as he understood, the God of the Old Testament scriptures. And the problem was that Saul didn't really understand his Bible. As learned as he was, if he really understood the scriptures, then he would have understood what Jesus taught, what the apostles taught. He would have listened to Stephen's sermon. He would have Uh, learned about Christ being the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, and he would have became a Christian. And I guess it just wasn't his time until on this fateful day on this road to Damascus. But in Saul's mind, he explains a little bit later, in fact, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and you'll see him explain his rationale of what he was doing, why he was doing it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 At this point, his name is Paul, right? Going back and forth, Saul to Paul. But he says in 1 Timothy 1.13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, and then notice what he says, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He received mercy because apparently what he was doing, he was to some degree ignorant in his unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Again, he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was neither a Jewish apostate nor a Pharisee who clearly understood Jesus's teaching. So he wasn't a Jew who left the Jewish faith and became an apostate. Neither was he a Pharisee who could clearly understand Christ's teaching. It wasn't as if he had a full understanding and rejected Jesus. The problem was he didn't have a full understanding. He had not yet come to that point where he really understood who Jesus was. And so Paul was a zealous, meticulous Jew trying to earn the grace of God. Remember what Paul said 
Turn with me to Philippians 3, again, looking a little bit at his biography, looking now at his rationale. He explains what he was trying to do. He was trying to be pleasing to the Lord. He was trying to do the right thing as a good Pharisee. And he writes about that in Philippians 3, 4 through 7. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's writing and he said, hey, if any of you guys think you're a good Christian, or better yet, if you were a good Jew, I was the best of the best. And in verse five says, he's got more reasons than anybody else. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. And then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he's given us some information about his rationale, his conversion, who he was before, and we know who he is after he met Christ. He thought that through his flesh, he had done all the right things. I mean, if anyone, again, could be saved by keeping the law, it would have been Paul. And he realizes that it was all for naught that it was all counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. His best works were but filthy rags. Everything was rubbish and refuse except faith in Christ. Paul's claim to his ignorance in 1 Timothy is not a claim to innocence. It's not a claim to excuse or to deny his guilt It was simply a statement indicating that he did not fully understand the truth of Christ's gospel and was honestly trying to protect his religion. The fact that he repented when he was confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus is evidence that he didn't really understand the lordship of Christ until Jesus revealed himself to him. And in his persecuting work, Saul really thought he was doing God a service. One more passage, look at Acts 26. Again, that he was convinced he was doing the right thing. He says in Acts chapter 26, as he's giving his defense before Agrippa, verses 9 and 10, Saul, now Paul says, I was, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Have you ever, at any point in your life, been convinced that you were doing the right thing only to find out that you were doing the wrong thing? Have you ever in your life realized that you thought and believed one way until something happened, and then you started thinking and believing another way. And, and many people of faith are sincere in trying to do the right thing. There are many people who are stuck in a religion without true relationship to God, no mediator through Christ, and they're convinced that they're doing the right thing. They're sincere people. They appear on the outside at least to be good people, but what they're believing is a lie if they're rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And anybody believing anything contrary to the New Testament or to the Old as well, are what they're doing and what they're believing would be in vain. And not only is it in vain, but it very well may be in direct opposition to and in violation of Scripture. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that Jesus says that if you love me, you will obey me. 
And if it's true that you've been believing one thing, one way, stuck in a certain tradition, stuck in a certain religion that's outside of the Bible, looking to the scripture alone for your authority and for your understanding of who God is and who Christ is, if that's true, then on this day, I'm calling you to repent. I'm calling you out of darkness and into light. I'm, I'm asking you to open your eyes to the word of God and to put your faith in Christ and to repent of your pride and your own effort in your own ignorance, and just ask God to open your mind and to regenerate your heart and to fill you with his presence. And as you read through this story with us today, that maybe God would sovereignly open your eyes so that you can see the same Christ that Saul saw on that day. So we're looking again at Saul's biography, his rationale, and then we see Saul's goal, his goal. They are reflecting again on verses one and two. He went to the high priest. He asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. When verse one there says that Saul was even still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, we are to understand this to mean that he was consumed with this goal. It wasn't just something that he did in his free time. It was, seemed like a full-time job. This is his total focus. He's breathing in and out persecution against Christians. He was overcome with passion to eliminate the followers of Christ. He was wanting to capture not only the apostles, but also every disciple of Christ. Be reminded this morning that a disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. A disciple is not someone who gives lip service saying, oh, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and then their life really doesn't change. A disciple is all in. A disciple is saying, whatever Christ does, that's what I do. Whatever he teaches, that's what I believe. Whatever he commands, that is my goal in life, is to follow in obedience to him. A true disciple will follow at any cost. A true disciple considers it a privilege to follow Jesus, even when it lends itself to scorn and to ridicule and to physical pain. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel, that verse says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's what a disciple does. They rejoice that I had an opportunity to be identified as a Christian, to preach the gospel of Christ, and even to suffer along with my Lord. 1 Peter 4.14 says that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. In our human response, we sometimes feel like we're cursed. Oh, I spoke up for Jesus and I got, you know, I got in trouble or someone made fun of me or I've got dissed or I got fired or I got kicked out of my friend group. But the Bible says if you suffer as a Christian, you're blessed. That's exactly where you wanna be. You wanna be one who's identifying with Christ no matter what. In verse 16 of that same chapter, 1 Peter 4, it says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's no shame for suffering for Christ. There's no shame for being ridiculed by the world. If you're in public high school today, people make fun of you because you stand up for the gospel. There's no shame in that. Your whole class could ostracize you. The teacher could mock you. There's no shame. There's nothing but glory. And I don't mean that in some 
proud way that you walk around and be like, I'm better than all of you guys. You're going to hell, all of you. You know, your approach should just be like, hey, this is the truth. This is what I believe. This is where I stand. I can do no other. And I'd love to talk to you more about how you could come to a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a privilege, saints. We're about to be more blessed than we've ever been because we're gonna be more persecuted than we've ever been. You're gonna have more opportunities than you've ever had to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just hope that you're not cowering and afraid and running and trying to find a cave in your backyard where you can go and hide. All right, we're ready to start marching and to come out and to stand up and to stick your chest out and say, I'm of Jesus, I belong to him. He's the risen savior of the Lord. This is the kind of boldness that God has called us to, and with that will come suffering. Saul, here in these first verses, again, he went to the high priest, which would have been Caiaphas, by the way, the same high priest that was responsible for condemning Jesus to death. Saul asked for letters of authority to go to the synagogues of Damascus and to arrest Christians and bring them back in handcuffs to Jerusalem. Now, Damascus was that ancient capital of Syria to the north and a little bit east of Israel. He ha- it had a large uh, Jewish population. There would have been many synagogues for Saul to pursue and exploit. And much of the preaching of the early church was taking place in the synagogue, or at least outside of the synagogue, as many of these apostles and their close associates would take the Old Testament scripture that was available even there in the synagogues and preach Christ from the Old Testament. So Saul wanted to go into all of these places where they were meeting and to pull the Christians out and to yank them back to Jerusalem bound. The Bible tells us that Paul wanted to persecute any and all men and women who belong to the way. The way here that's mentioned in verses one and two, the way here is pointing to the way of Christ. It's believed to have been derived from Jesus's words in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And because of that statement, the apostles likely continued to say that regularly or point to that as the way they were going, the way of Christ. And so it began to be known as a, as a way to refer to early Christians. In fact, Acts chapter 19, verse nine says, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. So when people wanted to persecute them, they would be like, oh, well, you must be of the way. So it was a derogatory term, the way it was used, often in Acts even 19.23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted, Paul says, this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. This indeed was Saul's goal. He wanted to harm harass and hurt anyone who belonged to the way. Saul was filled with pride. He was filled with prejudice. He was filled with a particular desire to rid Israel of any adherence to the Christian faith. This is who Saul was. And so now that we've seen a little bit about how Saul wanted to persecute every disciple of Jesus, let's now look at point number two, the necessity of being confronted by Jesus. And your next blank under that heading says, Jesus knocks Saul off his horse. Come on, now we're getting to the good part, right? Saul's having his way. He's wreaking havoc in the church. And all of a sudden on his way to Damascus, he literally gets knocked off of his horse. Verse three, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. 
and failing to be, uh, excuse me, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was approaching Damascus, which was about 150 miles or a six-day journey from Jerusalem. He was getting ready to wreak havoc there, just like he had been doing throughout Israel. And as he was traveling to Samaria, he might have even come upon some of those towns that Philip had brought some new converts to the saving faith. And as he was inching closer and closer to Damascus, all of a sudden there was a great light that shone all around him. This conversion of Saul was so dramatic, it was so pivotal in the life of the early church that Luke includes the details of his conversion in three places. Here in Acts chapter 9, then again, Paul recites his testimony when he was arrested in the temple in Acts chapter 22, and then again when Paul is making a defense before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And so if you compare Acts 9, 22, and 26, you get the full story. According to Acts 26, 14, Saul and all of his companions had fallen to the ground. Not just Saul, but his whole entourage. They all fell to the ground. The light shone, they fall off their horses, and they're on the ground. According to Acts 22, verse 6, we learn that this encounter happened at high noon. This light was not the sun. It was not an eclipse. It was not from any created thing. This was the light of Christ. This was the radiance of the second person of the Trinity. This was the light of the blazing glory of Jesus, the Son of God. And according to Acts chapter 22, verse 9, those who were traveling with Saul heard a voice like he did, but they were not able to understand what the voice was saying. Apparently, the sovereign words of Jesus were reserved for Saul's ears only. Saul not only heard Jesus, but he saw him as he testifies on so many occasions. And Paul says it this way in Acts twenty-two fourteen. 14. So I'm saying he heard the, heard the uh, voice. He saw the light, but he recognized that that was Jesus. He said, the God of our fathers, Acts twenty-two fourteen, appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. So he saw the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and heard the voice from his mouth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me. So Saul's claiming, Jesus appeared to me in the flesh on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to Saul on that road in a bright light that was so powerful along with Jesus' voice, that it knocked Saul off of his horse. And although it is not always this dramatic, God initiates the first contact in every salvation experience, right? When somebody comes to Christ, it's not because they, in their condition of being dead and an enemy of God, on their own, approaches God. It's that God pursues them. And this is showing us Saul wasn't pursuing saving faith. God was pursuing him. Jesus was pursuing him. And so this is a dramatic story. Again, it just reminds us that God always initiates contact in salvation. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So Jesus is reminding us, hey, that's my job. I'm to draw you to the Father. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. 
And so we understand here that, that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, Ephesians 2, and he made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 5. And just as the Holy Spirit sovereignly orchestrated the events that led up to the Ethiopian's conversion, which we read about last week, he also orchestrated these events that led up to Saul's conversion. And it's just reminding us again about the sovereignty of God in salvation, and it's seen nowhere more clear than maybe in Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Again, we're saying that God was sovereign over the Ethiopian eunuch salvation, leading Philip to witness to him on the road to Gaza. God's sovereign over Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus here in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 9. In, in Titus 3, 3 through 5 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You know what verse 3 is describing? That's your life before Christ. You were a bum. You're just sitting around hating everybody, hating everything. You got no purpose, no joy, no meaning, no truly eternal godly pleasure. But, verse 4 says, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Please notice it doesn't say, I got saved. Nothing wrong with saying, I got saved. I just want to remind you, but he saved you. He first loved you. He pursued you. You were lost. You were dead. You were a lazy spiritual bum. You were dead, and yet God pursued you. And when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God and our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Remember all the works that Saul had done, trying to somehow earn his way into a right relationship with God. It's not about the works done by us in righteousness, but it's according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is a sovereign act of God. This is what happens to Saul. This is what happened to every single one of you if you're born again today. It's a sovereign act of God. Years ago, I read a book by John Miller entitled Come Back, Barbara, which is about how his daughter was raised in a Christian family with John Miller and his wife, but she had turned away from the Lord and she moved out of their house and lived a renegade life. John and his wife begged God to bring her back. So the author of the book of Come Back Barbara writes this, quote, we had placed great confidence in Christian nurture, in home and in Christian private schools, but no no one knows, uh, excuse me, but no one grows into grace through a Christianized environment. No one gets to God by moral self-improvement. You only get to God by being transplanted from your natural soil into the life of Christ by a personal faith in him. In our nurture of Barbara, we had unconsciously forgotten these foundational truths. You know what they were thinking as parents? Oh, well, she's going to be a Christian because we're Christians. I teach at a seminary. I've taught her the Bible my whole life. She'll become a Christian because I'm a Christian. We can easily fall into that. It's so true that parents fall into thinking like that sometimes. It's something that we do. We think that our kids will come to faith if we do all the right things and how we need to be reminded this morning that only God can save our children. 
We are to be faithful in placing gospel truths into conversations with our kids, but only God can light the fuse. We are to be placing the gospel bomb into the fabric of our kids' makeup, but only God can light that bomb. Oh, how we need to pray that God would light the bomb. You can't depend on homeschooling to do it. You can't depend on Christian school to do it. You can't depend on Sunday school to do it. You can't depend on the youth ministry to do it. You can't depend on yourself to do it. It must be the grace of God through Christ. Light the bomb, oh God. Light the bomb. Again, we're just placing those truths into their hearts to the best of our ability, but we understand it's gotta be the sovereign act of God. This is true of your unsaved kids, if you're a parent this morning. This is true of your unsaved family of any age. This is true for your unsaved friends. This is true of your unsaved coworkers and of your unsaved classmates and your unsaved neighbors. God's gotta do it. But we're gonna have those conversations and we're gonna share with them what God's done in our life. This is what's happening on this very day with Saul. Somehow there was some gospel truth somewhere in there because there doesn't, there's not a whole lot of, of eloquent and in-depth conversation just yet where Saul seems to be somewhat converted. It just took the right moment. It took the sovereign snap of God's hand to say at this point and at this time, I'm gonna save this man. And please note that Jesus says there in verse five, look how he approaches him. He's knocked off of his horse, the the bright light. And he says there in verse four, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting how he repeats his name twice, Saul, Saul. And the reason that's interesting and amazing to observe this morning is because any time, practically, in the New Testament that Jesus repeats someone's name twice, he does so out of endearment. He does so out of endearment. Think back to Luke 10, 41, but the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Then on his way to the holy city of Jerusalem for the last time, Jesus said in Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And then just before his arrest, Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know what this shows us when Jesus pursues Saul and he says, Saul, Saul. It shows us this morning that Jesus was endearing himself to Saul. Saul was persecuting the body of Christ. Saul was a hater of God and of Christ. And yet when Jesus approached him, he said, Saul, Saul, even though Saul wasn't a Christian yet, Saul was, again, persecuting the church, even though Saul had been approving of the death of Stephen, Jesus endears himself to the lost. That's why the Bible says it's the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. There's nothing that you've ever done that would keep God from calling out your name, calling you dearly to himself. We also read here that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Here we see the doctrine of the Christian's union with Christ. 
Let's look at that a little bit more as we move on to verse 5, where we read your next blank. says, Jesus reveals himself to Saul. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This question of Saul seems to be hinting at the fact that he recognizes immediately that this is deity at this point. It seems certain that Saul knew that this was the Lord. In fact, the word for Lord used here is the word kurios, which is what is used by the New Testament to refer to God. And so when the word kurios is referred to God and now being referred to Christ as Lord, that's a sovereign title of deity. It seems like Saul is now at this very moment starting to have his eyes opened. And we understand that Saul is, he's starting to turn. He's starting to realize, he's starting to submit, and he's beginning to realize that what he's been doing has been wrong this whole time. And what he thought he was doing to protect God's honor, he now realizes was an affront to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only son. And then Saul heard these wonderful words, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And we know that when Jesus says, I am as he does so seven times in the Gospel of John, that ego in me, in the Greek, the idea of I am stated with great emphasis when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, when he says, I am the light of the world, when he says, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine, then in each one of those statements, Jesus uses the same terminology, ego, me," which in Greek, again, is I am. And the significance here is because that's how Yahweh referred to himself in the burning bush experience when he revealed himself to Moses. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus says, I am in the gospel of John, when Jesus says, I am Jesus here to Saul in Acts chapter 9, he is claiming to be one with God. He is claiming to be all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise. He's claiming to be the same as God in his deity. And not only is Jesus claiming to be one with God, he's claiming to be one with his church as well. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So when he says, I am I'm one with God. This is the beauty of the hypostatic union. Jesus has a dual nature. Part of his nature is he is one with God. Part of his nature is he is one with man. His one with God is his divinity. His being one with the church shows us that he's part of the church, that he's the head of the church, that we're part of his body. And Paul never forgot that reminder that while he's persecuting others, that he was actually persecuting Jesus because they're of the same body. The church is Christ's body. Christ is the head. That's why Paul writes about it in Romans 12, 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul wrote again in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. To the church of Ephesus, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 23, Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. So what you do to the body of Christ 
is what you do to Christ himself. When Saul was hurting the church, he was hurting Christ's body. Dear Christian, I know that we may not have any Saul's in our midst this morning, but each one of us are still guilty of hurting brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you have a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, in this church, or in the greater body of Christ, you're not only hurting that individual, you're hurting the Lord himself. He's one with us. We're one with him. And this is an opportunity where Saul recognized that. I've been persecuting Jesus. He was hurting Christ's body. It was time for him to stop. And not only was it time for him to stop, it was time for Saul to switch sides. He's actually been on the losing team. It's time for him to get on the winning team. And when Saul recounts this occurrence in Acts 26, 14, he writes, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. So that verse is not included in the best translations here in Acts 9, but it is included by Saul giving his testimony to Agrippa in Acts 26, 14. I think it's better placed there, but the point is it is there in in the inspired word of God. It is hard for you, Jesus said, to kick against the goats. You've heard that word, that phrase, if you've grown up in church, it's hard to kick against the goats. What does that mean? Well, the goads, a goad would be a reference to a sharp point that would be placed on an ox cart to keep an ox cart going forward. If you had an ox and it wouldn't move, you could strike that ox with a whip. And if you had a good wrist flick to it, hopefully that ox would go forward. But sometimes you might have a stubborn ox who wouldn't go forward. And so he might kick back. You whip him, he kicks back to you. So the smart engineer said, aha, let's put some goads on the ark uh, on, the, on the ox uh, cart, so that when the ox kicks back, we got him. We got him in the back of the thigh. And so the ox would kick back against the goad and realize, I really have no choice but to go forward. I can't kick back. I can't resist. I can't stop. I got to keep moving forward. And this is what Jesus is saying to Saul. Don't you see it, Saul? What are you doing? You can't keep doing this. I'm after you. I'm going to save you. You're going to be my servant. And it's becoming clear you can't fight it any longer. This is really demonstrating and illustrating the doctrine of the irresistible grace of God. Irresistible grace is that great reformed doctrine that says you may resist God for a while, but if he is pursuing you and if he is predetermined before the foundation of the world that you are his, then you will bow the knee to Christ at some point in your life. And when that happens... By the way, it won't be that God somehow takes you by the ear and drags you into heaven kicking and screaming, but rather God makes you new. And as he makes you new and he regenerates you, he transforms your will. And you no longer want to kick against the goads. You want to follow him. He's changed your inner man to the point of you desire to follow Christ and to serve Christ and be that disciple of Christ. And you can't fight it any longer. What a beautiful doctrine that you can't kick against the goats. He's telling Saul at this point, it's over, man. My mercy is going to surround you, and I'm drawing you out, and this is going to happen. And that could be you sitting here this morning, even right now. At this very moment, has Jesus revealed himself to you? 
and you've been struggling and you've been fighting and you've been pulling in the wrong direction. You've been kicking against the goads. And maybe on this very moment, Christ is opening your heart and through his word, he's drawing you to himself. And I know that you know it's true because you know there's a God from creation and you know there's a God from your conscience and you know there's a God, if you're honest, with all the circumstances that you face in your life that can't be explained by anything except God. And you know there's a God if you've sat in a church for any amount of time and heard about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which God sent his son, his one and only son, to die for you. And this morning, what we're seeing is that Paul understands and it is true. It is true that God is now saving him through the cross. And that's what he writes about, again, so well. Turn back to Philippians 3. And this is where, you know, it's kind of like Acts 9 is the outer details of his conversion. Whereas Philippians 3, that beloved passage, is the inner workings of what happened in Saul's heart on that very day. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, it says, Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Beautiful passage, Paul talking about his testimony. This is what happened in his heart. There is nothing in this world, he's saying, that compares to Jesus. Nothing compares to Jesus. And that's true. If you're here this morning and you're on your own road to Damascus or wherever, I'm not the bright light. I understand that. I'm not Christ, but I'm just saying you need to look to Christ and he's calling you this very day. I believe that through the preaching of the word of God and through the testimony of Saul that he's calling you. You could be eight years old. You could be a young teenager. You could be in high school. You could be at the master's university. You could have been a part of this church for 30 years and somehow you've been faking it. You've been on your little road of whatever you're doing. I'm imploring you this very morning to make sure that you're thinking about, do you really know Christ? Have you been kicking against the goads? This very morning, you can know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And this is the only thing that will keep you from eternal judgment. It's the resurrection of Christ. It's the power of Christ. It's the love of Christ. It's him pursuing you. He's calling you by name. This very morning, he's saying, Saul, Saul, whatever your name is, he's endearing himself to you that you could obtain resurrection from the dead through Jesus. Jesus knocks Saul off his horse. Jesus reveals himself to Saul. And then third, under the second point, we see that Jesus instructs Saul to do the next thing. He instructs him what to do next, verse six, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. What happens next are some simple directions for Paul to enter into Damascus and to wait there until he gets further instructions. Saul is to go and wait until God brings Ananias to him to tell him how he must proclaim the gospel. And this would involve difficulty and hardship. But this is the call that God has placed on Saul's life. 
And here is how Paul remembers those instructions when he remembers them in Acts 22, verses 15 through 20. It says, for you will be a witness to everyone of what you have seen and heard, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things of which you have seen me and those which, in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may, be, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified in the faith by me. So again, this is, what, this is a little bit more information about what it was that Jesus had said to him and what we'll read about next week as Ananias comes to give further instructions. You know what we learned from this? Very simple point. Sometimes you just gotta go to the next place. You just do what God's called you to do. I just know that I feel like he's called me to masters. He's called me to this job. He's called me to this church. He's called me to this marriage. He's called me to go on this mission trip or to this particular foreign field. I just know he's called me here and I just, I just wanna walk in obedience. He's given me the desire. He's made the, the, the preparation so that this could happen. I don't have all the details spelled out for me. I don't have, I don't have the whole, my whole future completely spelled out, but this is Saul becoming Paul, walking in obedience. This is walking by faith. This is waiting upon the Lord. This is trusting in his plan. Listen, the life of a Christian is a life of adventure. This is what each one of us are doing as we walk with the Lord each and every day. So we've learned about the persecution that Saul inflicted upon the disciples of Christ. We've seen the direct confrontation that Jesus had with Saul and maybe he's having with your soul at this very moment. And then third, the impact of being humbled by Jesus in verses seven through nine, your next blank says, an inability to understand and inability to understand. Verse seven, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And these men were speechless. This is how the others responded. We see how Saul responded, but the others are speechless. That's both good and bad. They're speechless because they don't know what's going on. And it's kind of sad that they didn't understand what was being said, but that was God's sovereign choice at this time about how this played out, and the men saw no one. In fact, Paul says in Acts 22, verse 9, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. What does it remind us of again? It's God's sovereign grace. Unless God opens your eyes, how can you see? Unless God opens your ears, how can you hear? Jesus didn't speak to all the men. He only spoke to Saul. Jesus didn't really reveal himself to all the men. He only revealed himself to Saul. And we can all be humbled this morning by the fact that we are not able to see and hear and understand God in his word unless he reveals himself to us. This forever serves as a reminder that salvation is not something that is man-made. Salvation is not for the super and, uh, and intellectual, the rich or the privileged. Salvation is made available to those whom God would draw to himself through the gospel. And consider what Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to your own worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose 
what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Listen, otherwise, if it happened any other way, Saul could say, I finally understood and made my way to heaven because I finally did enough things to get there. And that's not what happened. He had done all the things and he still wasn't saved. And so we understand that God saves those who aren't necessarily wise, who aren't rich, who aren't noble. He saved people like you and people like me. We can never boast and say that I saw or I understood with the sense of it was us bringing ourselves to seeing and understanding. Rather, we must boast in Christ. That's why the song says, I was blind, but now I see. He found me. Right? He gave me the ability to see and understand salvation is all a gift from God. A second thing that we can observe from the impact of Jesus would be this, a radical change in nature. Look at verse 8, a radical change in Saul's nature. He rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Remember, once Saul was described by the author as as someone who was wreaking havoc. We talked a week or two ago about he was like a raging bull. That's who Saul was. He was a raging bull, but now he must be led to Damascus like a docile lamb. In spite of his great learning, Saul was spiritually blind. Until now, he did not understand what the Old Testament really taught about the Messiah. Saul's attitude had been like that of a wild animal, but now he's been humbled. He's been tamed. He's been transformed by this revelation and confrontation from the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. We see here that something about Saul has significantly changed. Verse 9, a contemplative desire to learn. We see a contemplative desire to learn, verse 9, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul was now more humble. He was more teachable. He realized that he needed to think about what had just happened and wait for God to reveal more of himself to him. Could part of the lesson that Saul learned during that time maybe was later expressed in 2 Corinthians 12.10, where Paul wrote, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Saul was completely humbled, completely docile, completely ready to be molded by the master's hands. And I don't know about you this morning, but I have a lot to learn as a Christian And I have a lot to be thankful for as a Christian. And reading about and studying about Saul's conversion certainly makes me more thankful for my own. It makes me just kind of want to sit still. You know, after you're going through an incredible spiritual experience of church or Bible study or your quiet time or winter camp or a truth in life conference, you just want to sit and say, like, what just happened? I heard the word, God placed his finger on my chest And I need to respond in the right way. I don't know about you this morning, but I sense the presence of the grace of God through his word in our presence even here today. 
It's a reminder that each one of us, again, on our own road and our own journey, need to open our ears and eyes, and we can't do it on our own. It's got to be God. There's a poem written by Francis Thompson in 1890. You've probably heard of it. The poem is entitled The Hound of Heaven. It's actually a long poem. Thompson talks about God's relentless love that pursued him, much like a hound dog, until that love overtook Thompson and he was enraptured in God's love forever. Let me just read to you the first 15 lines. It goes like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter and visited hopes I sped and shot precipitated a down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic intimacy, the beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me. Might be a little bit hard to understand, but he's just saying he's coming. God just kept coming, kept coming with his voice, with his feet, until finally this man was overtaken and became a Christian. Let me just ask you this morning, is the hound of heaven after you this very morning? Oh, you can run for a while. You can hide, but not forever, because the omniscience of God knows who you are, and he loves you, and he's calling you to himself this very day. Would you respond this day, if you feel him calling you after we pray in this last, after we sing our last song and pray, there'll be a few people in the back. We'd love for you to come over, talk with us more about how the hound of heaven is pursuing your soul. And you don't want to wait any longer, but you want to sit still before Almighty God and have his word open to you so that you could come into a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, Adam, I'm born again. I'm a Christian. I got that down, but I think I've been kicking against the goads. And there's some stuff in my life that's, that's really holding me back. You want to talk about it with a, with a pastor, with an elder, with people from our prayer team. We want to talk with you this morning about how you can be set free as even we've been singing about this morning all by the grace of God. Are you blinded by the light of Christ? I hope that he's reaching out to you and that you would respond in a way that would honor him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this incredible conversion, the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. What a reminder today of all of these incredible doctrines of being one with Christ, of being saved by irresistible grace, of it all being about Jesus and his perfect life, death and resurrection that can bring anyone out of darkness into light. And I pray as a church this morning that we wouldn't be spiritually sleepy, that we would be stirred up this morning, that we would be overcome with gratitude this morning, that we would desire to walk in your truth and to have a closer, intimate relationship with Jesus. Nothing else, God, help us to leave just remembering the time that you saved us, reflecting on our own testimony and acknowledging that without Christ, without Christ, where would we be? What kind of road would we be on? What a miserable life that we would continue to pursue. And yet we thank you for the grace 
We thank you that it is your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you for the joy that we have as born-again Christians, and we pray that you would give us that boldness to be true disciples of the Lord Jesus, even when it costs something, and that we would love you with all of our hearts. Help us as we sing even this last song and contemplate these things, that you would have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.